Welcome to the Insights Podcast on the Huddle Network. I'm David Campbell. And I'm Don Mills. So, Don, we had a good conversation today with David Chandy, President and CEO of the Atlantic Provinces Economic Council. Yeah, very interesting and a bit of a far-ranging um, uh, discussion about economic uh, issues and challenges in the region. Um, and, and by the way, um, a plug uh, for APEC, they, they do a lot of really good work. Um, and uh, as uh, David mentions, they, uh, they re- rely on the support of members uh, for their, some of their work and for funded research as well. Um, he told us that they had uh, 250 members. That's a pretty good number. And, and I looked at their list. It's a pretty influential group. Um, but uh, here's an observation that I have. I mean, I always thought APEC did, did a good job. I always felt they were too low profile. Uh, they weren't. Uh, they didn't take advantage of their their uh, their data that they had to offer. I didn't think, and uh, it reminded me of my time on the Ames board, the Atlantic Institute of Market Studies, and and we struggled with the same issue of trying to get profile for the work that we did. And um, when Brian Lee Crowley was the CEO, it was easy because he was good at public relations and profile building and he was a great researcher and so you know it, it really helped in terms of fundraising and those sort of things but it's hard to find a, an economist and a fundraiser and a human resource manager all in one and and I, I just in my personal feeling and I felt the same way about Ames uh, there was a need to, to have a more aggressive uh, profile of the organization and uh, you know even perhaps by coming out with, you know, sometimes uh, controversial statements, uh, you know, to take a stand on an important issue. And I think that's the challenge of, of organizations like APEC that are, you know, um, behind the scenes are doing a lot of great work and, and helping organizations understand what the uh, opportunities and challenges are across Atlantic Canada. And they just don't get enough profile and um, recognition of, uh, for the work that they do, at least that. So that's one of the observations that I have about APEC. Yeah, I think that's right. I, th- I think David's done a great job in terms of the quality of the research. He's actually, I think the output uh, increased during COVID-19. So I think it was very interesting to see how they were able to come uh, as, a, as a research team and put out a lot of relevant research during COVID-19. But I agree with you. I'd like to see even more um, uh, distribution and more utilization of Apex research capabilities and their research. And uh, happy to give them a plug today on this podcast because I think they do have, they're very relevant and they're very relevant for all four provinces. Yeah, one other thing I, I just want to mention that they, uh, if for anybody's interested, go to their website. They have uh, themed research uh, areas. I think there's maybe eight of them, including, you know, things like economic development, the labor market, uh, you know, taxes and fiscal responsibility, um, which he mentioned that they were going to do some work uh, on that and uh, uh, population and, and, and urban uh, development, those sort of things. No, that, that kind of work is really important. And I also want to mention one other thing is that it's really important to have an organization that's independent, arm's length to do, uh, economic research for businesses and government, you know, so uh, both both sectors need that independent view on key economic issues, whether it's labor force, you know, projections or whatever. Uh, I think they play a really useful role. And a lot of people don't, uh, in the business side especially, maybe don't un- understand uh, what they offer. The Ames did the same thing, you know, contracted uh, arm's length uh, independent research to uh, to uh, help in the decision-making for organizations. So that's a role that maybe a lot of people may not uh, understand about uh, APAC, but it's a really important role that they do play. Absolutely. Governments have reduced their internal capacity to, to do this kind of work anyway in recent decades. And I think APEC is neutral. They're external to government. And, and even when they do commissioned research, they do it in a professional way. So I think I think they do have an incredibly important role to play. And I think our conversation today and David's vast knowledge on all those topics from immigration to rural development and so on, uh, you know, points to those skills in the organization. And I just want to say one thing before we run the interview with David, like, you know, it's not often, but I have to admit, 
I learned some things in this conversation when it comes to economic issues. There are some perspectives that I hadn't thought about. And so I feel enriched by that conversation. And I hope those who uh, take the time to listen to this conversation with David uh, find the same thing. So here is our conversation with David Chandy, President and CEO of the Atlantic Provinces Economic Council. David Chandy, welcome to the Insights Podcast. Thank you for having me. So, David, I thought we should start with a little background about APEC. There may be a few people who don't know about your work. Uh, uh, maybe you could start with what you what you what your mandate is for the organization, and uh, maybe when it got started. Just a little background like that would be helpful for some of our listeners. Sure. So we have an economic uh, policy, economic research policy research organization. We've been around since 1954, so we're well established in the region. And our mandate is really to be the source for insights, for research and ideas that will help, uh, that are really essential to help support and ensure a healthy, sustainable and inclusive economy. So our mandate wording has changed over the years, but essentially we're always looking for Atlantic Canada's economy. How do we help businesses make better decisions? How do we help policymakers better make better decisions and really bring in the facts, the insights and some of our own thinking ideas to how can we really help strengthen and improve this region's economy? Well, you know, that's a, that's a real coincidence because that's what David and I are trying to do too. <laughs> uh, maybe you can tell us a little bit about uh, how you're funded. I know that you, you're membership-based uh, and driven, but you also do uh, funded research, I think. Uh, maybe you can talk a little bit about that, can you? Yeah, so we have three main funding sources and it's all really driven by uh, kind of market demand. So we have our members who, are, who pay their membership subscriptions and for that they get access uh, to our member-only publications as well as discounts for our events. Uh, we have our events where people will pay to attend and members benefiting from those discounts, but non-members can attend uh, business outlook conferences, investment outlook, uh, policy topics that we do. Uh, and then our third major revenue stream would be contract research, uh, which is more government funded, typically uh, some business uh, really looking at some of the bigger, longer term kind of policy issues. So, again, everything we do is driven by we have to have someone that's willing to pay for that research, which means there's maybe some topics that are harder to fund than others. Uh, but we really have to stay in touch with what people uh, want us to do. So all our research has to be relevant. It has to be useful. It has to be timely. And that's where we've been trying to continue to make strides in terms of what we do deliver for those who use our services. Uh, I'm assuming you would be pleased to have more members. Uh, can you give us an idea how many members you currently have? We have about 250 members currently, which would include uh, everything from federal government departments, provincial departments, municipalities, big and small business, labor organizations, indigenous groups, colleges and universities. It's a fairly broad uh, mix and people tend to come in for different reasons. Some really want specific economic intelligence that we provide. Others really want that independent voice that APEC provides for the region and they want to support that and ensure uh, that is strong. So again, there's, there's different reasons why members join, but we're always uh, welcome uh, new members to, to reach out and uh, get in touch. Uh, you can easily find us on the website, so happy to uh, follow up with anyone who might want to do so afterwards. Perfect. David, why don't, you, why don't you tell us a little bit about your own background, your own story and how you ended up getting the ultimately becoming the head of the region's top think tank well i became interested in economics uh, back in the uk where i grew up and as a teenager i had a chance to study economics and seeing on the news rising unemployment rising interest rates in the early 1980s seeing uh, the sterling exchange rate fluctuate uh, and then studying economics and having that help me understand what was happening uh, around me what was happening in the economy and also then raising the possibility that a good economic policy could actually make a positive difference in people's lives. So that's really what motivated my interest. Uh, I had a chance then to do my training in the UK. Uh, and then later on, I met uh, a young lady from New Brunswick. And after being in the UK for a few <laughs> years, we moved uh, to Atlantic Canada, to Halifax, is really that's the, the largest uh, job market for economists here in the region uh, and allowed us to be somewhat close to her family. Uh, and so at the end of 99, we moved here. Uh, I was looking for work. Uh, I was offered a six-week contract at APEC at the time to do some uh, research and write a report on Atlantic Canada's experience post-free trade. 
Um, and that eventually led to a permanent position uh, and eventually, you know, able to contribute to different types of research, present uh, different conferences and different audiences, a lead research project on a wide variety of topics uh, over kind of a 20 year career. Uh, and then in 2018, there was an opportunity to apply for the CEO role, and uh, the board appointed me to that role at the end of, of end of 2018. So it's only been a, a few years since, but uh, certainly had a, a long uh, history with APEC and uh, really getting to know the Atlantic region, which I knew nothing of when I came here, and have really been able to kind of develop a, a more in-depth appreciation over that kind of two-decade period. Now, David, uh, APEC recently released its uh, Atlantic Economic Update, I think in June. Um, I wonder if you can give us a really high-level summary of uh, APEC's assessment of the economy in Atlantic Canada at the current moment. Well, I think there's probably several things to say. I mean, certainly we want to recognize that this pandemic and the shutdowns associated with that have really hit this region hard, as it has many other places. It's clear that those initial impacts and the existing impacts are still very uneven when you look at uh, different industries, our tourism, our restaurants in particular, and different demographic groups, youth and, and low and low wage in particular, still very much uh, seeing you know, much weaker employment conditions. So overall, the, the, the recovery is well underway. Uh, we see retail sales have been very strong uh, for many months. Uh, other sectors are coming back, but we are still kind of some ways uh, from where we need to be and if you look at current employment you know relative to february of 2020 you know we're, we're down about two percent in the atlantic region and you know maybe that doesn't seem a big number when employment was down 15 or 16 percent down uh, last year but you know the last recession we had a decline of about one and a half percent so 18 months into this pandemic we're still in a worse situation than we were in the last recession in 2008 or 09 so the recovery is underway. Certain businesses and sectors are doing better, uh, but others are certainly lagging behind. So there's, there's still a long way to go. And as we know, with the pandemic and variants, like we're not out of this yet. So we're, we're still looking at kind of a lot of uncertainty as we look forward to the next year. And, and what would be your biggest concerns for the region coming out of the pandemic? Well, I think when when I look at concerns specifically, I think, you know, how long it is taking is a concern. Like, as I just mentioned, it's been 18 months and we're still kind of well below at the aggregate level what we were uh, prior to the, the pandemic. So, again, you know, when we look at that, uh, you know, if it's going to take us, you know, several more months just to get back to pre-COVID levels, that doesn't account for the fact that over that two to three year period, the economy would have grown. So are we ever going to get back to what we would have reached had we not had this pandemic? So I certainly think there's some potential there for some permanent loss uh, of opportunities and activity and incomes relative to what we have. So that's, I think, you know, one concern. The uneven nature, I think, as I just mentioned, is another big concern. You know, the tourism industry, the restaurants, they're still struggling with travel restrictions and distancing requirements and also, uh, you know, confidence, the confidence of consumers and their willingness to come back, uh, willingness to get on a cruise ship, willingness to fly. Uh, and that's all going to impact the, the recovery. And I think, you know, we have to be honest, some businesses will not survive, have not survived. And so are we going to see a permanent loss of capacity in some of those sectors? And then the question becomes, you know, do we need to look at rebuilding some efforts in some of those? Or do we need to look at kind of replacing that activity because, you know, maybe those tourism operators were marginal. They maybe we don't want to try to rebuild those, but maybe we want to look at different types of economic activity. So I think it's challenging right now because there's a lot of noise in the economic data. There's a lot of uncertainty, but I think trying to dis distinguish wherever those permanent losses and what do we do about that? Do we try to rebuild in certain sectors where we need to rebuild capacity or do we need to shift our focus and focus on where the new opportunities are? So, you know, how long it's taken, the uneven, and if I can just make one last comment, is just around overall cost pressures. I think we saw this after the last recession where businesses tend to uh, reevaluate their economic structure. So if they're based in Montreal or Toronto and they're looking at the Atlantic region and they're seeing the cost pressures and revenues have been down, 
And so they, they evaluate, well, where do I want to have my investments? Do I need the, this office in the region? Do I need as many employees? So I think just because of the pressures we're under, you know, we've seen this with memberships. We've seen this trying to get sponsorships. People are watching their dollars very carefully because of the pressures within. And when you have a small market like Atlantic Canada, you don't have the economies of scale. That can certainly have a prolonged impact in the recovery as people kind of reevaluate you know, how much effort and investment do I want here? So again, I think that's a concern and whether we can turn that around with remote work and turn that around with, you know, different advantages that this region might be able to offer, I think that remains to be seen. Yeah, I would say that's one of the concerns I have is, will there be industries or organizations that use the pandemic as an excuse or a reason to make some big change, right? So even for the airport system in the region. So there was talk of consolidating the number of airports, say in New Brunswick or significantly reducing traffic and so on. So Halifax is gonna be fine no matter what, but some of the other airports might be more problematic. And I've been arguing we, we, we need, we should try to at least get back to some pre-pandemic level as opposed to try and you know shake things out in a, in a brand new way, particularly in air, in air traffic. But I take your point about companies based in Montreal or Toronto or wherever sort of reevaluating of course WestJet shut down permanently their big call center in Moncton and there's others that are you know you would like to think they're going to come back the air you know the accommodations reservation centers and so on but maybe because of remote work and so on that might change but I wanted to ask you related to that this issue of the workforce so we are hearing about a growing shortage of workers even though there's significantly more people collecting EI uh, than in the past because of this enhanced EI program that they developed after the CERB program. So I wanted to ask your thoughts on that. Do you think when that program winds down, do you think sectors like restaurants and retail are going to see their workforce come back strong? Or do you think there's something that's structurally shifted that, that uh, is more problematic in terms of the long term for certain segments of the workforce? Well, I certainly certainly think there is structural issues here, um, but that certainly we've had some temporary impacts. We did some analysis last year around served in particular, and when you look at wages by industry, <clears throat> you look at people working part time. There's clearly, or there were clearly, financial incentives of people that they will be better off on certain benefits than they would, uh, at least from a financial point of view. Working, there's still value in work experience and and other benefits to being at work, uh, but I certainly think those effects are there, and we certainly heard from certain employers where they're struggling and you know that the only reason they can think of is you know that a generous EI or other benefit system that uh, they've got jobs there's opportunities but they can't seem to attract people to those so so there's certainly some temporary effects happening and I think we do need to ensure our policies are promoting our recovery that they're promoting re-employment and they're certainly supportive in doing that uh, while still remembering that some people might be particularly disadvantaged and still need some kinds of support. So it's a tricky issue to try to have the right incentives uh, and still provide that support. Um, but I certainly think we need to do a better job on that. But I think, you know, when we think of the structural issues, we're hearing quite a few reports of labor shortages. We're doing a study right now, uh, trying to dig deeper into that. Uh, and you can go back to, uh, you know, to 1990 and you look at the number of people retiring uh, and you compare that with the number of young entrants and we had back then you know 20 young people entering the labor market for every 10 retiring so it was great if you're an employer there was lots of opportunities today for every 10 people retiring we have seven people entering the labor market and that is just not going to change so that is the structural shift just in our labor market we have this aging workforce more people leaving than joining and you know our projections indicate that's going to be here to stay and so i think the challenge then becomes if there's less new recruits coming into the labor market the matching of the skills of those workers with the needs that employers have uh, becomes even more critical so you know we have to think more carefully about our education system and the basic skills that are coming out of that uh, uh, you know, post-secondary education and the trades, again, ensuring that the skills that are being developed in those institutions are meeting the needs of employers, uh, a greater need for employers to think about training, and then, of course, immigration and ensuring that we've got a good match of the people coming in and their skills and experience with the needs. So this is going to be with us for decades. Uh, and I think how we manage it, uh, as we've said in our reports, is critical because if businesses can't get the workers, output's going to be constrained, tax revenue is not going to grow as fast, 
there's a wide range of implications uh, and people then may just relocate elsewhere. So remote work can be an advantage because maybe people want to work here and we can attract people back here. Um, but that same remote work means that work can easily move elsewhere if they can't find the workers. So uh, it, it could be a two-edged sword for this region. We need to turn it to an advantage. Uh, but this labor issue is going to be with us. And this is, I think, one of our biggest economic challenges as we look forward. Uh, David, uh, APEC also did a series recently on population and demographics, which uh, I found uh, very helpful and useful. Um, and you looked at the challenges that we face, uh, especially uh, given the, some of the urban-rural splits. And, um, you know, I've done a fair amount of work in that area myself. Uh, the aging uh, population is uh, a bigger problem in rural communities than it is in our urban communities. Um, we have had a bit of a wave of migrants uh, from elsewhere in Canada that moved here during the pandemic, although I don't think it's really showing up in the stats, is, is it, David Campbell? It's not really there yet. Um, and I think you made a really good point that I hadn't thought about, but you know, if people are moving here to do remote work, they could also move somewhere else to do remote work. So maybe that's not a big, as big an opportunity as everybody uh, uh, was thinking. Uh, uh, is that uh, is that kind of what you feel that uh, it may not be that important uh, to the population challenges that or, or the employment even challenges that we have? Yeah, I think there's probably two things. One, maybe just on the data side, and we've certainly looked at the, the data as well. And, you know, we've certainly seen the anecdotes. I think everyone's heard the anecdotes. You probably know people. Like, yeah. so we know there's something happening that people have moved from bigger centers to this region uh, with their jobs, typically. Um, they've just relocated where they're working. Um, but when you look at the actual data that's come out so far is what's happened is there's less people moving into the region uh, than pre-pandemic, and there's less people moving out. So migration as a whole for fairly obvious reasons uh, either can't move or just do I really want to move at this time uh, given uncertainties have been much lower so that you know, on a net basis you know we're getting more people but it's not because there's this influx this large influx of people it's actually it's really because there's just less people moving out so it would certainly still contribute to house prices and the inflation we've seen there because there's just less people selling to move and there's more people relatively still buying so it's still consistent with the story um so i think really what's happening is you know these macro trends of less migration might be outweighing the pandemic effect that we hear about uh, but it could also be that these data are still kind of preliminary in the sense that you know tax filer data is used to look at migration data and that's lagged by several years and so other indicators are used for these quarterly estimates so it could be that we're not necessarily seeing what we're seeing on the ground in the data i think we just have to allow for that possibility but i think the key thing to think about here is people moving to this region with employment and not helping fill our labor shortages uh, they're coming with jobs, they're coming with incomes, they're going to contribute to spending, uh, but actually they're going to make our labor shortage worse because they're going to spend at restaurants, they're going to spend at entertainment, they're going to need doctors. And so that although the tax revenues will be higher and the spending will be there to justify new employment, we're actually going to need more people to sustain that larger population base. So if they were moving here to fill vacancies, that's helping, uh, you know, address our shortages we will need less in migrants or immigrants to, to fill those positions but otherwise it's great to have them here for the economy but they're not helping to address the specific labor shortage issue that we had well uh, also sorry sorry yeah, Bob, but they've also bid up bid up they've bid up the price of housing uh which is it's a good thing if you're a municipal government and you want the revenue but it's a bad thing for residents as more and more of our income is going to have to go to shelter costs so it, you know i think it's a double-edged sword i just before don jumps in i just want to ask you about remote work in the sense that do you think there's going to be more pressure for those remote workers to pay taxes in other provinces the way for example the remote workers to alberta pay uh, a little bit of their income tax in alberta i, I just i raised this because i see they're doing it now in the u.s with new jersey and and uh, new york so if you have more people working for Ontario companies doing Ontario work, but doing it from here, do you think Ontario is going to want a piece of that action? 
Yeah, I, I'm not quite sure on the taxation. I know from a personal point of view, you know, where your primary residence is, that's where your, you know, your your provincial taxes are going to be based. And, you know, depending upon where you are, maybe you actually want your taxes still to be filed in Alberta or Ontario, um, <laughs> maybe it, they're going to be lower. So I, I think the other thing is on the corporate side is, you know, those corporate taxes are also allocated by you know, how much employment you have in those jurisdictions. So that might have some implications again, because our corporate taxes tend to be somewhat higher. So again, I'm sure accountants and uh, tax planners and those will be very active to make sure that they maximize this for the benefits of their company. <clears throat> um, but I think, you know, from the economics point of view, you know, you know how those people captured, you know, in the labor force survey, they're employed here in Nova Scotia, in the CEF, uh, the business payroll. Uh, I'm not quite sure whether they're still going to be captured as Ontario, which is most likely. So we get, we're going to get this increased divergence that we saw with the Alberta effect where you know, employment is not showing the same response, uh, but it's, it's being picked up in different surveys in different ways. So you know, we really need good data to understand how big is this phenomenon and how many people living in Halifax are technically doing a job that was previously done in Toronto. I think this would really help us uh, understand some of those kind of dynamics and, and what's happening. Yeah, so just to get back to population a little bit <clears throat> one of my big interests over the last i don't know 20 years is the rural urban challenges that we have in our region having twice as many people than as the rest of the country more than twice as many people living in smaller rural communities is tough economically as you know uh, in the spring you published data on the difference between growth in urban and rural Atlantic Canada and concluded that diverging population and economic dynamics will continue in the future. Uh, maybe you can talk about what do you mean by that and, and do you see opportunities for growth in rural areas or is decline in rural areas inevitable? Yeah, well, just to, to clarify what we mean by that, I think if you look back uh, over the last uh, two decades, population growth in our biggest six cities, you know, the four provincial capitals plus uh, St. John and Moncton, um, you know, that population has grown by 21%. Uh, the rest of the region has seen a decline by 7%. And you can look at lots of other economic indicators, but they tell that story. So that's what we're talking about when we see these diverging statistics. And it's not that rural industry that the rural areas are declining in terms of output, uh, but because of productivity growth, the, the output growth is not strong enough. So employment is declining because of productivity improvements and because employment is declining, uh, population is then also declining. So that's where we're getting kind of some of these shifts uh, that we're seeing. So in terms of, you know, what do we see going forward? Uh, you know, I think these agglomeration economies where people and young people in particular are moving to where job opportunities are, they're leaving smaller rural communities, moving to bigger cities in this region and elsewhere for job opportunities and potentially also, you know, other lifestyle and entertainment and things that they want to have. Uh, and employers are similarly then looking, well, where, where are the workers going to be? And so they're also then looking to base themselves uh, in those bigger cities. And even in manufacturing, you know, we've had a very resource-based manufacturing sector. And you look at manufacturing employment growth uh, over the last few decades. And, you know, the growth, you know, you've seen declines in rural communities. And the growth has been in our urban centers. So it's aerospace, it's bioscience, uh, it's other advanced types of manufacturing that are not dependent upon those kind of rural-based resources. So those shifts are happening, and I don't really see those reversing. And so those cities, again, you know, and our cities are still small, like we're not big, but, you know, I think those agglomeration economies are going to continue in terms of employees and employers, and that's going to drive that forward. I think for rural communities, we need to be careful. And again, the challenge is we can pick top six cities, but then there's a whole bunch of uh, medium-sized towns and very rural communities and so it's hard to paint that with a broad brush and do detailed kind of modeling work to, that really gets into each insight so I think what we have to recognize there is going to be a variety and so some communities if you've got a fairly large employer which is fairly stable or there's got growth prospects they will do better because they've got a fairly stable or growing economic base. And other communities that don't have that or are at risk of losing that or they've got an employer that's vulnerable, those are the ones that are going to be most challenged. And again, in terms of you know, what's their recruitment base? Are they able to attract workers who might work elsewhere, but to live in that community and then spend in that community? So there's lots of these different dynamics. But I think you know, the biggest challenge for our rural communities is going to be labor. 
and it's going to be they've got an aging workforce they're going to be retiring and it's healthcare, an aging population in those rural regions wherever the doctors the nurses the support workers going to be for those people who want to remain in those communities where are the next generation of teachers going to be where's the next generation of accountants and lawyers for some of those rural businesses so that's where I think the challenge is really going to be. And how do you ensure that you can attract and retain workers to those communities? And often you're not just looking for the worker, you're looking for two jobs because their spouse also needs to move. So they're looking for two careers in that community. They want doctors, they want access to good education. So how do you ensure that you can do that? And if you can't, what are your options? You know, Is automation and digitalization, are those viable options for your business? Or, or we really get into some very challenging discussions about viability of certain businesses in those communities and what does that mean for our overall economy? Well, just yeah. to follow up on that question, Dave, if you don't mind, uh, I, I, you probably know uh, that I've been advocating um, economic hub strategy across the region for some time. And if you look at the communities that I would call urban, uh, they, they, you know, the Stats Canada definition, as you know, is 5,000 or more. And un under that very low threshold, including the six big cities, and they're not that big as you mentioned, <laughs> there are 30 communities across the line of Canada with what I would call critical mass. And the thing that's interesting, and you probably looked at this yourself, but each one of those communities, they have post-secondary edu education institutions. They have usually, uh, you know, regional health centers, you know, they have critical mass in terms of having uh, enough labor to create an, a local economy for full employment. And I've always felt that uh, one way of keeping rural people in their, uh, in their communities is by having nearby access to jobs and services in these smaller urban communities. But the problem is, and I've, got, I've been to a lot of them over the years, <laughs> there's no economic development plan for those communities that that looks at it as an economic zone looks at the assets tries to identify you know what it can be done to leverage those assets and and build an economy and attract people not from the rural communities surrounding them but from elsewhere into those communities and there's starting to be some success successful examples of that uh, by the way um, including you know uh, summerside you know summerside is starting to get critical mass through its uh, it's uh, aerospace uh, park and, and, and a bunch of, so it can be done even in smaller places. So, you know, I guess my question is to you is that, you know, the definition of rural and urban really needs to be really clarified. I think people get all confused when they talk about a place like, uh, I don't know, um, Miramichi as a rural community. It's not, it's a small urban community surrounded by a lot of rural for sure, but it's not rural on its own. So I think, you know, the discussion and the definition of communities, I think, is really important going forward, don't you? No, absolutely. And again, when you're writing a four-page report, it's you, you, you try to be careful on definition, <laughs> you try to be careful on wording, but we're also trying to be very concise. And, and so, yes, mm. but I, I do take your point, and we try to be careful in that. Uh, you know, rural, you know, we typically not try to use that as outside the big six cities because uh, we recognize the smaller communities and, the, you know, there's Truro's and Bridgewater's and Amherst and Sackville's and Cornerbrook. So we, we have those. And I certainly think, as I mentioned, you know, some of those regional service centers and those who have a strong economic base have better prospects than those that might be more remote uh, yes. and maybe less sustainable. So I certainly think that's partly why we've been doing this series about looking ahead. I think we need to look ahead as businesses and employers, and I think we need to look ahead as in, as in, as governments and think about how does this future look? How do we ensure that you know the people who are not gonna leave there have access to the healthcare that they need uh, and ensure that we're not kind of, that we've got the right incentives for development of those communities uh, because mm -hmm. Uh, sometimes we're putting a lot of resources into communities that may not be a uh, long-term viable and maybe we're not putting them in others where we can kind of ensure that there is more viability. So I do think we need that type of analysis and thinking around, you know, how do we support those communities because they're not going to disappear. Like Truro, you know, I don't see Truro disappearing, but some other smaller towns might have more challenges. So how do we differentiate that 
and ensure we're supporting you know the best growth prospects and if people want to work remotely and they want to commute to Toro or they want to commute to Halifax how do we ensure that they have those opportunities and choices uh, but accepting that you know maybe some services that they previously anticipated uh, may not be available going forward to the same degree I, I really think we do need to think about the fiscal implications as well as kind of some of the business and economic implications. I think Don's urban hub thing makes a lot of sense. And I've talked about this in the past that, you know, I re recently read a report in Australia where they're trying to reverse the polarity. So people will live in the urban areas, but actually commute out to the small towns for the jobs in the factories or agriculture. So that's kind of reversing, right? In the past, you would live in the periphery, commute into the city. Uh, and that may have to be the future. But in that case, in, in that in that um, place in Australia, they're actually trying to incentivize people to drive out into the rural areas for those jobs because they were considered strategic jobs, agriculture, tourism, yes. and so on. So that'll be very interesting to see how that plays out. I wanted to ask you specifically about the tourism sector in this region. Um, are you predicting a rebound in that sector or do you think that's going to take two or three years or more to fully rebound? Yeah, my baseline perspective is it's going to take time. Um, and I think, you know, some of the reasons for that, you know, this, the, the recovery from this uh, is going to be bumpy. Uh, technically, it might be non-linear, but people understand it's bumpy. Like we've seen this in the region already with some, you know, progress, and then we've had to curtail because of outbreaks of the variant and kind of kind of shut down again uh, and I think you have to be realized you know economists are not epidemiologists uh, you know I'm not an expert on you know the, the variant and how it might uh, vary over time so that fact is coming in and I'm not also a psychologist and this human dimension of confidence and willing to travel so I really think you know economists doing their best to forecast but uh, there's two key variables at play right now where we don't have that that's not our expertise and so we're trying to build our forecast and those key variables of how people respond and their confidence of willing to travel and go back to restaurants uh, uh, how the the, the variants uh, vary and how policymakers respond so if we have another outbreak or a new variant uh, the delta variant starts to take off how are our policymakers going to respond? You know, now a lot of people are doubly vaccinated. There's a lot of questions and uncertainty. So I think, you know, the big issue has been travel restrictions. That's really hurt our economy. Uh, we're seeing those ease. We've seen the US-Canada border made some, but, you know, we're not there yet. And so I think this slow recovery or this slow easing of travel restrictions will be a factor. Uh, I think the, you know, the, the confidence is not going to come back straight away. This, you know, we've already traveled to New Brunswick, we've already traveled to PEI, uh, visited family uh, you know, in New Brunswick. Like, th there's people who are just going to be desperate to travel, business people who are desperate to get to see their businesses or investments. So some of this is going to come back fairly quickly. Um, but I think, you know, in general, uh, it's going to take some time about willingness of people who previously went on cruises or previously traveled internationally, where they're willing to go. And it's late in the season this year for Atlantic Canada, so we've lost a large part of this season so that's already going to have impact so next year you know assuming you know things are not any worse than what they are now and they're actually a lot better we should see further recoveries but some people uh, you know i'm going to go back to the uk as soon as i can i didn't go in 2020 i didn't go this year i have parents i want to see them i'm going to travel and there's other people going to be in similar situations but others are going to be a little more cautious and i think that's going to lead to that kind of kind of slower recovery and i think the question here is you know to what extent does it fully recover because i've heard different views on business travel and saying look this is absolutely essential we have to be in these markets um but then i've heard others where we've we've seen the benefits of remote work we may not need to have as many meetings so it's not that we won't travel but maybe we don't need to spend as much on travel we can do more remote work and so what does that mean for you know conventions and conferences you know how quickly will they come back will they come back to the same extent will they be in the same locations that they might have previously gone to uh, so i think there's a lot of factors that are going to play out uh, and it really comes back to you know what's the long-term prospects for this region are we going to get a full recovery uh, i'm not sure we'll be back to what we were anytime soon um, but you know where are those gaps really going to be and what do we do about it i think is still a key question uh, David, Apex uh, 2021 major project inventory identified a number of large projects that have been postponed due to COVID, uh, including offshore mining and, uh, and some other projects. These projects apparently amount to about an additional $7 billion 
dollars and postponed or even canceled investments due to COVID. I think that, that APEC is saying that uh, housing and healthcare will be two of the biggest contributors to investment growth this year. Um, certainly hospitals in Nova Scotia is going to be a big deal. Uh, do you see a rebound in capital spending in 2021 and 2022 based on your research? Certainly from the, the work that we're doing and we do track all the big investment projects in the region. This is one of our key products that our members like. And so we do try to speak to as many of those project developers as possible. So that's where this information is ultimately coming from. So yes, we are seeing a rebound this year. We've seen a big uh, loss, as you mentioned, with projects delayed or canceled. Uh, we are expecting, I think, overall about an 8% increase in investment this year. Uh, and next year, you know, when we did that forecast was, you know, heavily dependent on what happens in Newfoundland's oil sector. Uh, we've seen a bit of positive news from that with the Terra Nova Life Extension Project, which has had some positive signals, not fully uh, signed off yet, but that should certainly provide some positive uh, upside, even though a lot of the work might be done uh, in Spain. Uh, but we've seen, you know, the gold LNG project looks like it's it's not going to go move forward. Certainly there's a lot of doubts and questions about that anyway. So I think, you know, overall, we do expect to see projects that were slowed or delayed will start to move forward. The oil industry and the oil price of, you know, is still some questions about some of those projects about what and when. Um, but I think, you know, when you look at our population growth over the last few years, it's grown quite rapidly on the basis of immigration. I don't think our housing markets is necessarily fully caught up to that. And that's why we are seeing, you know, some, you know, even without COVID, some fairly uh, aggressive of trying to accelerate housing developments. Charlottetown would be a great example of a need for, for housing. We've seen low vacancy rates in a number of cities. So that demand for housing and those big housing projects is what we kind of capture in our inventory. That's certainly a key factor. And as you mentioned, you know, healthcare, uh, some fairly big investments in Cape Breton and Halifax happening in Nova Scotia. Uh, those are certainly helping as long as, you know, infrastructure projects in PI and other places. So, you know, that broad kind of less resource dependent activity is continuing and for different reasons of timing of funding and housing demand, uh, providing some underlying support to overall investment levels in the region. So you've talked a little bit about immigration already, but I wanted to dig into that a little bit because again, you've done quite a bit of research in your looking ahead series in April you published considerable data on the importance of inward migration to support workforce demand. You put forward scenarios that suggest a visible minority population across Atlantic Canada could rise to 17% of the population by 2040 and 30% of PEI. And Don and I have been discussing what's going on in PEI, but that would be remarkable if that, if that province, if the total population in that province got to 30% uh, visible minority. But I guess a question for you maybe is to comment on that. Are you are you bullish about immigration into this region? And we, we know there's a real government commitment to it, but do you think, you know, in such a short time we can foster high levels of retention and, and really use immigration to bulk up our population workforce? Uh, certainly, I think that the provinces all have fairly aggressive immigration targets. And when we were doing our projections, we were not necessarily aligning our projections with their targets. It's really driven by our understanding or an estimate of what we think kind of growth in demand will be and therefore you know how many people do we need to bring into this region and that's why in our projections we actually have a range for immigration because a lot of it depends upon our traditional loss of people to the rest of Canada if that continues, we'll need more immigrants coming to this region. Uh, if we see some reversal of that because of COVID and remote working and, and those types of shifts, we might need less immigrants. So that's why we kind of looked at a range of scenarios. Uh, but when you look at immigration, you know, we, we need people in this region, uh, as we've discussed earlier, unless we're gonna have more people to replace those retiring workers, or we're gonna have to spend a lot more on automation and investment in technologies to reduce our labor requirements. So. Uh, I think we're going to see both. Uh, you know, we need more uh, people who are underrepresented groups in the workforce, Indigenous and other groups. We're going to need to see more immigrants and we're going to need to see more technology investment. So we're going to need all three. But when you look specifically immigration, uh, you know, if you look at the current numbers, about three out of four are visible minorities. And so, you know, you look at Atlantic Canada in the last census, I think 4% of the population was visible minorities, uh, you know, much lower than, you know, Canada as a whole, where it's one in five and, you know, Vancouver or Toronto, where it's even higher. Uh, but you project forward those recent immigrants being 
largely visible minorities, the types of immigration levels we need. And it's a fairly simple exercise to start to look at that. And, you know, PI in particular has been growing very quickly. Uh, if they're going to continue to sustain that economic growth, they're going to need immigrants. And it's fairly easy then to see why as a small population growing very quickly, uh, if that is sustained, they're going to get some fairly high rates of visible minorities. And so when we were doing this, you know, one of my hesitations were, you know, how are people going to respond to this? Because it's quite a shift for this region. It's still going to be below Canada. It's still going to be well below what you see in you know, big cities like Toronto or London. But for people in Atlantic Canada, it will be quite a change. And it's going to happen slowly. And that's why I was a little concerned about putting those numbers out for 20 years because it looks like quite a big jump. <laughs> it's happening slowly. You're seeing this in Charlottetown now. You see the increased number of Chinese people and businesses and restaurants. So, uh, so it's going to happen. But I do think it just points to, you know, we have to be willing and open to people coming with different cultures who look different, who maybe have different values uh, and ensuring that they are successful. Because I grew up in the UK, uh, there's you know, London, Bradford, lots of cities with high visible minorities. They're, they're UK citizens, they're second or third generation, uh, but in some of those communities, they were just not doing as well and we've had riots and we've had issues. So I think we wanna be very careful with this, that the immigrants that are coming <clears throat> integrate well, uh, that they're able to be successful, that children are able to be successful and that they prosper and add to our communities and we welcome and kind of embrace that. Um, but I do think, you know, it could be, you know, looking 20 years time, I mean, I've been here 20 years, looking 20 years ahead, you know, some of our communities could certainly look quite a bit different. Uh, and, you know, it's not going to be Toronto, but it's going to be a, look a lot different than it has uh, in, the, in the recent past. Uh, David and I have spent quite a bit of time talking about population and, and the examples of success of population growth, PEI being the prime one. Uh, it shows clearly the, the link between population growth and economic growth. Uh, we've suffered from the lack of our share of immigrants in this region forever until recently. So we do have some catch up for sure to get near even close to the national averages uh, that currently exist. And I just want to make a point because you, you mentioned that each of the provinces had their, their targets for immigration, uh, David, I, I can tell you that if you look at the uh, targets for Newfoundland, for instance, they're inadequate. Uh, they will not uh, they will not do what is needed. Um, they have uh, the oldest population. They have the lowest level participation rates in the region. Um, they don't get it, I don't think. And, and not only that, they're in fiscal uh, turmoil on top of it. But um, I, I just want to just uh, talk for a second about the importance of um, what that means to uh, each of the four Atlantic uh, provinces in terms of economic performance. Because we know that uh, PEI, based on the number, have had the highest uh, population growth in the region for at least the last decade and have outperformed not only the rest of Atlantic Canada, but Canada in terms of GDP growth over the same time period. So they've become a bit of a model, don't you think, for other parts of the region in terms of uh, understanding what is needed to uh, improve their economic performance? Well, certainly PI has done very well. We've certainly seen that in some recent GDP numbers for growth, like they've been leading the country or you know, certainly leading the region. So certainly there's been lots of positive things happening. And I think you know, it does reflect the diversification they've seen. We've seen growth in the aerospace sector uh, over a period of time. We've seen growth in the bioscience sector over a period of time. And we're seeing other kind of sectors, you know, their back office uh, processing and IT sector. So there's been a lot of opportunities that have grown that economy beyond its kind of traditional base. So certainly I think there's lots of positives there around diversification. Um, but I think, you know, when you look at some of those sectors, there are still some big employers in those sectors. So it's not maybe as diverse. You know, there's some key employers. So again, you know, having those anchor employers who are committed to the region, who are growing, that's kind of key for some of those sectors. But I think, you know, we look at our region, our traditional industries have lots of opportunities to grow and develop, to use new technologies to be more sustainable. And kind of the knowledge-based sectors, whether it's financial services, uh, whether it's something like, you know, the new kind of new small nuclear opportunities in New Brunswick, whether it's ocean technology in Nova Scotia, Newfoundland, there's lots of opportunities for our technology type companies are knowledge-based economy to grow and develop and you know if you can start to attract investment and grow the domestic uh, base whether it's clean technology technology 
that then creates the demand for workers and people want to move to places that are growing, that have prospects, people want to invest in those regions. So again, I think that's what's going to drive it. So we have to think about the economic opportunities and then ensure that we can have the people and they can have the doctors and we can have the houses that they're going to need to be able to support that growth. And I think that's partly what you've seen in PEI. The economy has been growing faster than the capacity of the housing market to respond. Uh, so again, you, you have to make sure you've got integrated policy here because labor is just a big piece of the economic development puzzle maybe in a way that it wasn't 20 years ago when we were trying to bring people in to fill jobs now you know, making sure we've got people for the opportunities is really a critical piece that we need to think about just one point on that you know that the whole the, the big issue we need to think about on the immigration side is retention and i think we've seen this in pi and it's not always gone quite as well attracting immigrants is not the same as retaining immigrants and so if we're bringing in immigrants to these communities and we're not able to retain them and their families, or we're just going to have this cycling of bringing people in for two or three years. So this is really a challenge. Uh, and when we did our projections, you know, if you go from a 50% retention rate to a 75% retention rate, it makes a big difference. So even though we think about economic development and we think about labor, uh, it's very important that the people we're attracting want to come and want to stay and we're able to then to integrate them and retain them well, because that's really going to be a key driver on the immigration side as to how well and how effective that policy is going forward. And, and just to add to that point, because I, we, I, David and I have talked about this as well, it's really important to have a strategy where you where you attract critical mass in the immigrant groups that you're 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 targeting, so that you know they become self-supporting with their own services and businesses to serve their culture and their religious interests and that sort of thing. And, you know, because we have had so little immigration for so long, there's only really a few uh, groups in the, in the region that has that critical mass. I think of the Lebanese community in Halifax, for instance, you know, they're, when they, when somebody from Le Lebanon comes into Halifax, they're completely absorbed into that community. They never leave once they come in because the support systems are so powerful for them. So we just need more groups with more critical mass to, to help the retention numbers. Because if you're, if you're the only, I, you know, Iranian in Charlottetown, <laughs> likelihood of you staying is pretty low, I think, because you're looking for some cultural support. You're not going to get it if you're the only one. I think that's right. But to David's point earlier, though, I think you don't want to have isolation of ethnic communities because then you get what's happening in France potentially what's happening in France and other places. So we do have to have integration. And we're seeing, Don, you and I have talked about this, for example, churches yeah. uh, in Atlanta, Canada. I was surprised when I saw those numbers are, are really uh, excellent sort of retention tools. A lot of newcomers do attend churches and mosques and synagogues, uh, yeah. and they get to mix with other other uh, uh, local people that were born in Canada and so on. So I think I think that's you, you do need that critical mass of, of ethnic communities. That's absolutely correct. But you don't want it to be so self-contained that that they you know that they don't actually integrate into the wider community and build wider social exactly. and, and business yep. and professional networks. You know. So I was just going to say, Don, because it's an incredibly important point, and I don't know if David wants to weigh in on it, but the, you talked about playing catch-up growth when it comes to immigration. That's actually not what's going to happen. I just looked this week at Ontario's immigration forecast through 2040. Uh, and they are projecting their immigrant numbers will more than double by 2030. <laughs> so the real issue here is whether or not the federal government, so they're looking at the numbers right here, even under their low growth scenario, they're gonna have 120,000, no, 160, under the reference scenario, 170,000 immigrants by 2030, uh, which is about 80% more than today. And then under the high growth, 222,000. So I guess the, David, are you confident the federal government will be able to boost those immigrant numbers, you know, to four and five hundred thousand nationally to accommodate all of the different provincial targets? Well, I know that when we were doing uh, some of this similar type of research and projections 20 years ago, and we had these projections and we had a lot of discussion with a consultant who was helping us build a model and and you know the expectation that we would see you know in migration was just like i think people had a hard time getting their heads around it but even at the national level at that model 
it was going to require increased levels of immigration. And again, I think we've started to see that in recent years where uh, the government has recognized we need to be bumping up those targets. Even as we're going into recession, you know, they were still aggressive last year in terms of increasing the immigration targets. So, you know, the, the challenge is not the targets right now, it's the, the challenge is ensuring that we can actually have those immigrants kind of come to this region and get them processed and things. So, but I think, you know, as people recognize this is not just an Atlantic Canada issue, it's an issue for us. It's an issue across the country for very much the same reasons. We've got our peculiar dynamics here that we've got more people dying than being born. So it's a particularly imperative issue that our population would decline without immigration. The rest of Canada is not at that point, but the trends are still there. So that need for immigration is going to be there nationally, and therefore you're going to have to see that response in terms of federal policies. The question is, you know, we are not the only advanced country with an aging population. Uh, and just as we see competition for international students and you see China being much more aggressive, uh, the question is, are we going to be able to attract and retain those workers? And again, you know, attracting someone from a big city in a, in other, in a developed country may not be a good move for us because they're going to want to move to Toronto and be in another big city in Canada. So I think we need to be very careful in Atlanta, Canada, that we think like, who would make good fits for this region, not just skill wise, but in terms of kind of the types of communities that we can offer that they would then, you know, it would be a, a, a similar kind of shift uh, moving. So I do think there's lots of opportunities, but lots of countries and lots of employers are gonna be seeking those same immigrants. So that's where it comes back to, you know, that, that talent challenge of being able to offer something that will attract and retain workers as an employer, as communities is going to be really critical. But we're not the only country, we're not the only region, and we just don't have the resources to compete with Ontario. So how are we going to compete with some other country, the UK or Australia? So this is where this talent uh, and this, you know, this, this war on talent or, or demand for talent is going to be a real challenge. David, that uh, time is flying by here, so we had so many things we wanted to talk to you about. But I did, I did want to ask you specifically about APEC. So this, you are an employer, you do have a, a team of, of talent there. You've been affected just like any other organization. So I wanted to ask you how, how are things at APEC? How has the staff weathered the pandemic? Have you shifted to a remote model? Are you back to the office? Uh, did you lose staff? Uh, are you have things permanently changed in terms of how the organization is structured moving forward? Like, how, how are you doing at APEC? So certainly, this has been a, a challenging year, just in terms of we did make some reductions uh, in employment uh, early on, just because we we weren't going to have in-person events. We lost a critical source of revenue, and that was kind of an immediate way of responding to that. Um, but really, we've been inundated with demand for research over the past year. So it's been quite a strain to try to do more with less uh, over the past year. And certainly this year, I've been trying to uh, provide some rebalance in that. I've certainly been very appreciative of the staff that uh, are with us and their work and their, have they responded. But, uh, you know, you can't sustain certain levels of activity. So I've been trying to be very careful this year. And we've actually turned away quite a few requests to do work because we've just not had the capacity. So. My key challenge right now is the same one that we just talked about. It's the labor challenge. And uh, we're actually in a recruitment process right now to add two new economists to our staff. So we are looking to ramp up. Um, so again, that's kind of where we need to go because there's been a lot of, I think people have seen the good work we've done uh, over the last year in particular, uh, that there's lots of questions and unknowns. And so they're looking to APEC for some thoughts and insights. So I think the demand for APEC to do more contract research is there. Uh, I need to have have the capacity to be able to do that so that's kind of where we're going in that side uh, and in terms of remote work you know we typically hire summer students uh, as uh, uh, every year and you know this year we've had someone from memorial working from st john's we've had someone who's from this region but's been studying and the university of toronto so they've been working from toronto so we've been doing the remote model this year one of my uh, employees is from Newfoundland, so she's been taking extended vacation there and then kind of working remotely uh, while she's been there. So we're certainly shifting to more of a remote work model. I'm just not quite sure exactly what it's going to look like going forward. Uh, I think large employers can look at a hybrid model and a hoteling model where you can come in two or three days and you've got office space. You know, a small employer like APEC, I think we've got to be more in the office or it's hard to justify having office space that you're not really using very much. So I think we're going to be more at home or more in the office. I'm not as convinced that the hybrid model works for 
you know, an organization of a, of a handful of employees and justifying long-term that office space. So I'm not quite sure where we go. I think we've proved we can work remotely and I certainly want to look at, you know, ideally, can we have an economist in Newfoundland? Can we have an, a researcher in, in New Brunswick who can then be a lot more on the ground visiting members, attending other events that we can't do now? So I'd like to look at something that's more remote and more geographically dispersed. I think that would be good for APEC going forward. Uh, but it really comes to you know, where people want to work. Uh, if they want to, be, if they if their family's in Halifax and that's where they want to be, it's really going to be driven by uh, the, 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 the talent pool that's out there and where they want to work. Uh, and if everyone wants to be in Halifax, then, you know, maybe we go back to more to the office model. Uh, if new hires are more scattered around the region, then maybe we'll learn, lean more towards the remote model. Uh, one final question, uh, David. We're, we're interested if we can get the scoop on what's coming up that nobody knows about, uh, either in, in terms of event or research that you can tell our listeners. Well, in terms of events, our big uh, next event will be our annual business outlook conference. So that is not a scoop. We've certainly sent out some emails uh, to members and non-members will be hearing about that soon. So that's coming up at the end of October, November. Uh, it will be online uh, this year. Again, we're hoping to get back to in-person events uh, next year, but that will certainly be online. Uh, in terms of kind of upcoming research, uh, we have been doing this Looking Ahead series. And again, you can get access to that through our website, uh, but we have one last publication on that that's really looking at fiscal sustainability. We're just finalizing uh, the last piece of that that's gonna kind of pull together some of that economic demographic projections and what does that mean? Uh, so that will be coming out. Uh, also some work we've been doing on updating uh, inventory of clean technology firms in this region and clean technology adoption. It's becoming a much bigger issue in terms of sustainability. So that's something that we will be looking at. Uh, and other work ongoing, I mentioned, we've got some more work happening this year on skills. So there'll be a number of pieces on that, uh, you know, looking at seasonality and employment insurance as part of that. Uh, we've done some work over the past year on indigenous communities. Again, not everyone has benefited and been impacted equally. Uh, so we, we have a study that will be starting in the fall looking at you know, how can we help ensure indigenous businesses uh, and communities benefit from the recovery and benefit from some of the long-term shifts in Atlantic Canada. And so th that's work that we have underway, a uh, piece on diversity hopefully will be released this fall. And then work that I'd like to do would be around you know, the skills and the EI piece, the net zero, the, the cold climate change sustainability. There's lots of big questions on some of those topics uh, and I would like APEC to be able to have a voice on that and, and bring some insights and, and ideas to bear. David Chandy, thanks for joining us today on the Insights Podcast. Thank you, I've enjoyed it. You've been listening to the latest episode of Insights on the Huddle Podcast Network, hosted by Don Mills and David Campbell. Mark Legere and Sharice Letson helped produce this episode. You can subscribe by searching for Huddle Insights on podcast platforms like Apple and Spotify. And we care about what you think. So please give the show a rating and a review. Don and David will be back again with another episode next week.